Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. Well, at the end of the last episode, I said we would be exploring the biblical character of Jezebel. That's not going to happen this time. I have it already recorded, but since so many of you have asked me to release my thoughts on this topic of, of this episode, and I heard that uh, there was a debate coming up on it, and I wanted to get this out for um, the debater on my side of the aisle to have a little bit of extra uh, research to dig into. I finally got around to doing all of my research for this topic and getting much of my thoughts down. So I wanted to give you this first. So we just bump Jezebel to the next full-length episode. Now, we'll jump into the show here in a moment, and if you appreciate the content of this episode or of any episode, please consider becoming a sponsor for the show. You can click on the click on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog or by finding us on Patreon. Your gift of any amount really does help a lot. If you can't financially support but would still like to show some love, why not head over to the iTunes uh, store and drop the show a rating and give us a review. The star rating really helps the show climb up the search results. So thank you in advance for that five-star review. Also, feel free to share this with any of your friends, family, coworkers, I don't know, neighbors, pets, cats, whoever you would like to share this content with, uh, I would greatly appreciate it. Also, I want to start putting a lot more content out for you all in the form of those shorter freed bite episodes. So please continue to submit your theological or biblical questions, and I'd love to see if I can answer those for you in a more timely manner and get out some more content. Now, with that, that out of the way, what's on the docket for today? Now, some of you may remember my dialogue with Chris Date from Rethinking Hell on his position of conditional immortality. Well, since the folks over at Rethinking Hell basically block anyone who disagree with them and thus ban me for simply challenging one of their admin's views and accuracy and asking one of them to stop being rude and dogmatic, I decided that I wouldn't have Date back on for a round two on the show. Sad, I know. It's nothing against Date personally, but if his ministry and ministry partners are going to treat opposing views that way and block me, why would I have one of their main representatives back on my show and give them a platform when they won't extend the simple same courtesy? So that dialogue was cut short. But many of you have asked me to give a more robust treatment of conditional immortality and annihilationism and why I think it's not the best interpretation for any of the texts of scripture. So here is part of that endeavor. This is part one. Enjoy the show.
The attempt to redefine hell as a place of eternal conscious torment for those judged by the wrath of God into a state of utter annihilation is not a new development within the church. While I think many who are involved in such an enterprise engage in some manner of revisionist history in order to make their view more pronounced or developed within the early church than it in fact was, it must be admitted by all who study the historical theology that the so-called traditionalist position, also called eternal conscious torment, has never enjoyed the position of being the universal view of Orthodox Christians. While the runner-up is clearly some form of universalism, the eternal life, the view that eternal life was conditioned on God's grace for the believer and eternal annihilation was the outcome for sin has been present from some of the earliest witnesses, at least in some form. It should be noted here that a case could and should be made that these early authors were simply employing biblical language and so however we interpret the scriptural witness on this may also inform how we should understand these patristics as well. Thus, some of us, myself included, are skeptical of just how much the early church should inform our present theological conviction since it may simply be a tool for confirmation bias more so than anything else in these kind of quasi-ambiguous debates. However, the fact that some version of conditionalism or annihilationism was undeniably present in the early uh, church to some extent should be enough to allow brothers and sisters in Christ to engage openly, honestly, and charitably to have dialogue on a non-essential issue like the nature of hell. This is not to say that one's view of hell is not vitally important, nor that it does not have antenna into other theological issues, some of which we'll likely discuss in, in this present series, but only that one's view of hell alone is not enough to determine if one is or an Orthodox Christian or a heretic. At the most, one might be able to say someone is on thin ice with a potentially heterodox view when they depart company from the majority view of eternal conscience torment. Now, in our present time, a mixed group of academic and lay Christians have been effectively advancing the case for what has been called annihilationism or conditional immortality or conditionalism. I'm going to use those views, those terms somewhat interchangeably, even though they're similar and they have key distinctions. This series just is not going to have the time to delve into such differences since space is limited and most annihilationists and conditionalists honestly are satisfied that both terms roughly describe their views. And I don't think I'm making any objection that's so specific to either one that it wouldn't apply to both. So this group is entitled Rethinking Hell and has been successful at legitimizing conditionalism to a broader audience within Western Christendom, specifically in United States and Australia, via their blog, podcast, and social media efforts, more so than any generation before them. Though the group is merely a loose affiliation of conditionalist proponents, uh, and, and this person is not their leader by any account, Chris Date is by far the most well-known advocate and debater that Rethinking Hell has put forth in its campaign, and he carries on the torch for the work of others such as Fudge, Pinnock, Stott, Wenham, and others. By far the most influential work on the topic uh, that one uh, could accuse, I'm sorry, uh, 
most influential work on this topic from a conditionalist perspective is Fudge's The Fire That Consumes. Now, the goal here is that no one could accuse me of dealing with superficial, shallow, or minority views. And so I'll be dealing with a combination of the arguments for the position put forth by Stott, an excellent exegete by any standard, and the Rethinking Hell folk, since I think they're some of the strongest available for public consumption. Now, I want to make some methodological points before I get started. For this series, I'm going to attempt to approach conditionalism with a tactic that I don't think is typically employed by its critics. While I'll necessarily need to follow a logical order and deal with specific arguments and scriptural passages first for the arguments in this series to be intelligible, one thing I have noticed in reading and listening to Date and the others at Rethinking Hell is that they developed a kind of entwined web of concepts and defenses in their presentation of their views. This means that rather than each idea or argument being an isolated or atomistic fact that undergirds the system, they're more like a silken thread within a series of interrelated thoughts of a whole conceptual web. This creates a unique challenge for their critics in that they must be able to devise and execute a multi-fronted offensive while at the same time discussing one concept in turn. It's similar to the type of thing uh, uh, um, critics of Calvinism must be able to do. They must be able to keep all the doctrinal balls in the air while they juggle and yet shift focus on one of them without losing sight of the others. Such systems are especially hard to critique precisely because of the hazards involved in trying to keep the whole system in mind while addressing only one of its parts. In some forms, this manner of systematic formulation can be an impenetrable fortress that's reasonable to hold, like I think Calvinism is. But in others, the connections between the concept forms not a fortified fence, but a forest of fallacies. If the concepts are not properly inferentially connected, but rather are foundationally coupled with one concept needing to be present before the other can be adequately formulated and vice versa, then a picture of circular reasoning or special pleading slowly develops. I think this is the case with conditionalism and will seek to show that the system is not only built on questionable exegetical assumptions for its biblical data, but it also destructively self-referential in its inferential case. Thus, that the web itself is washed out by the reign of reason and the case for conditionalism is ultimately unconvincing. This will come out mostly toward the end of part two of this episode series later down the line. In addition to this, one of my goals will be to explore this topic from within a consistent biblical hermeneutic. While this present series did not have nearly the space to allow for a full treatment on the numerous discussions about what constitutes a robust biblical hermeneutic, I'm going to lay out three of my assumptions that will inform the manner in which I treat the texts of Scripture. While I imagine that most of my readers will readily agree with these assumptions, at least most who are orthodox and broadly evangelical will, my goal is to be as transparent as possible in this series. That means that while some may attempt to respond to the, the, the later content of the series, I also want to state my presuppositions from the outset for those who wish to undermine my case by attacking at that level. 
My three hermeneutical assumptions are as follows. Number one, I'm going to hold to a grammatical historical methodology. This means that before attempting to draw out any meaning from a text, I think we need to attempt to understand what is being said according to the grammar and language of the text and how such grammar and language would have been understood by the original author in presenting their message to the original audience. Number two, I'm going to use a historical redemptive methodology. This means that once number one has been completed, I'll also seek to understand this passage as it's placed within the flow of redemptive history between creation and consummation. I think we need to seek to understand not only what the human author meant, but its meaning within the broader canon and what the divine author may have intended for the verse or passage at that point in redemptive history. Number three, and this will show up again shortly, is the analogy or the rule of faith. This is the rule of hermeneutics that seeks to understand less clear passages in the light of clearer ones. That is, we allow our theology to be built from more obvious passages that need less interpretive spade work to passages that need quite a bit more interpretive spade work and not vice versa. Okay, one other note that should be made at the outset of this series is that the research Uh, language and arguments presented here will not necessarily be entry level. While I'm still going to try to seek to explain concepts and terms as much as possible, the goal here is going to be to continue the discussion being had among scholars and academics and the educated laity familiar with some of the background literature. I think anyone will be able to pick up this series and listen to it with comprehension, but may from time to time need to consult some of the reference works um, that will be listed in the show notes and seek additional clarification from those around him who may have spent time examining these issues uh, for themselves. Finally, before I approach each of the doctrinal supports of the inferential structure of the web system itself, Let me present the support for conditionalism as Stott and the folks at Rethinking Hell present them. Rethinking for Hell, uh, for example, constructs them not as a web, but as a stool propped up by four legs. Here, I'm going to take those four legs and kind of fuse them together with Stott's arguments, since there's a ton of overlap. And then I'll attempt to show not only why I believe that each of these legs is cut off kilter, but also why the stool analogy itself is ill-formed and hides, unintentionally or otherwise, the actual fallaciously interconnected structure that undergirds the CI position. That is, it encourages us to only focus on one leg at a time, ignoring the overall structure of the stool. Now, It should also be stated, okay, last caveat, (laughs) that from the get-go that I have some sympathy for the conditionalist position. Not that I think it's true, but that I don't think it's heresy and that I don't think it compromises the gospel. Neither do I think it undermines inspiration or any other such rhetoric commonly launched at them. I recommend going back and listening to my discussion with Chris Date to find out why I hold that evaluation of them that I have, and I'm not as harsh as others. I also think that conditionalism has two strong arguments going for it, which are undoubtedly difficult to answer. The problem for me is that I just don't see it borne out in the scriptures. So let's work some of this out. I'm going to give six of the main arguments for conditionalism 
And then in part one, we'll respond to the first three dealing primarily with the verbal and textual issues. And then in part two of the series, I'll address the more systematic and theological issues. Those two arguments that I think are stronger ones are both in the theological category, and thus I'll address them in the next episode, because I really don't think the textual uh, parts of, of the case for conditionalism are really all that strong. Okay, so what are the arguments for conditionalism? I'm going to give you six. Number one, passages that speak of death and destruction of the wicked at the eschaton when carefully exegeted, reveal that, the, that it is total, complete, absolute destruction and the final cessation of life, as opposed to the gift of eternal life given to the believer. Number two, the Greek word forever or eternal, which is ionios, can mean age, even, that a, even if that age is eternal. We cannot assume it necessarily means eternal. Number three, Imagery used to describe the eternal destruction of the unbeliever, such as the unquenchable fire, the worm that does not die, the judge, etc., are all about the nature of the instrument and not the longevity of the subject being punished. Number four, eternal life is conditional to the believer, and as such, the unbeliever is simply not given access to eternal life. The soul is perishable if cut off from everlasting life. Number five, eternal conscious torment is in discord with the atonement since Christ did not suffer eternity. Um, I'm going to give a quick qualification here. This is going to come up a lot in part two, but here I think a qualitative view of the atonement would be needed on both sides since Christ also was not eternally annihilated. If that was the punishment due to sin, then Christ did not complete that either. If it means just the physical death, then Christ's death was unnecessary since Christians have been physically dying for nearly two millennia, apparently for their own sin. I don't find this objection um, really all that compelling, and I'm wondering if it's because I've misunderstood it or mistaken it. So if anyone listening holds to this view, and would like to spell that one out to me a little bit more clearly and briefly. I just haven't found the arguments for it convincing at all or compelling even in the slightest. So I'd love to see if there's something I'm missing. So please reach out to me for that one specifically, as well as this next one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna again, I'm gonna address these more fully next time, but I wanna give a couple caveats here to see if just there's something I'm missing before I go into depth on them. In the next episode. So the, the sixth argument is that eternal conscious torment is in discord with the biblical view of love and the justice of God. I place this one last because it's commonly mistaken as a motivation for people to eschew the biblical text and to engage in some pretty aggressive motivated reasoning bias to hold to conditionalism. So putting at the end will help to not have this front-loaded and mistaken of me accusing all annihilationists or conditionalists of some such motivated reasoning. I don't think that's the case for all, though honestly for some, like Clark Pennock, I think it clearly is the case. For example, Pennock writes, quote, Let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. 
How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do a, such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any ordinary moral standards and by the gospel itself. Surely the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is no fiend. Torturing people without end is not what our God does. End quote. That is emotionally driven, if I've ever heard one. And such an emotionally driven view is one of the reasons why Pinnock is one of the weakest proponents of the view that often gives some of the most trivially inconsequential arguments for it. So I don't really engage with Pinnock much because I think he really is driven uh, by that. Now, for some of you, you might agree with Pinnock and be like, well, yeah, he made some really good points. I'll go into depth. Uh, biblically speaking, in the next part, why a bunch of that is just not biblically sound. Um, so we'll go into that next time. But I want to leave it at the end so no no conditionalist listening is thinking, well, I'm just, I, I just think all of them are engaging in motivated reasoning. Okay, <clears throat> now let me jump into some her hermeneutical considerations. These are going to be in addition to the presuppositions of my hermeneutics that I stated above, with the exception of one, the first one, which is the analogy or the rule of faith. That is, again, that it's that we interpret the clear uh, to help, or we take the clear to help us interpret the unclear. So when a passage uses a term like death or punishment or destruction and so forth, it may do so in a vague or an unembellished way. However, we should not read these, these unembellished passages as our controlling passages. We should read more clear and explicit passages as our controlling passages, as our controlling texts, as a lens through which the less clear passages can then be read and understood. We'll see that the annihilationists and the conditionalists frequently get this exactly backwards and work from their less clear passages to interpret the more clear ones. Number two for hermeneutical considerations is that while analogies are helpful, they're only helpful insofar as they're analogous to something. I'm going to repeat this over and over and over again because I think this is one of the biggest problems in the hermeneutical way that conditionals handle texts. Unless the conditionalist wants to go into the realm of pure allegory, the language of eternal suffering must map onto some reality for it to be meaningful. What could eternal consciousness be analogous to besides real conscious awareness? We're going to see this come up over and over as we go as we go through and and I'm going to continue to ask of my conditionalist listeners who wants to fall back on calling passages metaphor to escape the weight of objections what is it metaphorical for often we agree that there's metaphor i agree with you that the unquenchable fire is a metaphor i don't think hell consists of a literal fire and literal darkness and an all-consuming fire, and worms that would be consumed by that fire. They're clearly symbols to be sure, but they're paired with language like weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternality, 
which we must ask what the concept, a concrete concept is that can, the conditionalist thinks that such clear expressions of personal and eternal torment map onto to make the symbols meaningful. So that's a second hermeneutical point that's going to come up repeatedly. The third one and just becomes is, is that just because some passages could be consistent with annihilationism or conditionalism doesn't mean that we should read them that way. Some passages in complete isolation could be read to mean that God learns and repents. But given the broader canonical and systematic reading of the text employing the analogy of faith, we just don't read them that way, and we shouldn't. Just because some of the passages are ambiguous enough that annihilationism could be a possible reading doesn't mean that we do not have ample other passages that mitigate against such a view. As Leon Morris wrote on this issue, quote, against the strong body of New Testament teaching that there is a continuing punishment of sin, we cannot put one saying which speaks plainly of an end to the punishment of the finally impenitent. Those who look for a different teaching in the New Testament must point to possible inferences and alternative explanations, end quote. That means that basically what they have to say is, yeah, yeah, I know that eternal conscious torment is taught in this view or in this verse, but this verse could also be about annihilationism. Yeah, it could, but that doesn't mean that we have to hold it that way. Okay, next we have vocabulary considerations. This is where I'm going to go into dealing with some of the terms that are used. So the first one that I like to look at, the first word group, is the uh, Apollumi or the Apollea word group. This is the destroy, to, to destroy or the destruction uh, verb and noun group. Now, when the verb is used as a transitive verb, that is that it's used with a person as its, um, as its object, it means to kill. When it's used as a middle intransitive verb, that means that it's the, the, the subject is passive, that it means to perish. Stott makes the claim, quote, it would seem strange if people who are said to suffer destruction are in fact not destroyed, end quote. And elsewhere, speaking of a comment made by a debate opponent, he says, quote, it is difficult to imagine a perpetually inconclusive process of perishing, end quote. Here, the problem, while his statement is prima facie reasonable, really it's just tautologous and question begging. Of course, to be destroyed is to be destroyed, and to perish is to perish. The question isn't if to be destroyed means to be destroyed. The question is what does it mean in the various contexts to be in a state of destruction or to be destroyed? Stott assumes that destruction means complete and full cessation. That's just not an assumption I, myself and many scholars are willing to grant him. It's just too hasty of a conclusion. The Apollea, as well as the Alethros uh, groups, have a range of meanings depending on the context and more often than not mean 
uh, do not mean complete cessation, but rather a loss of essence, nature, or function. Mu gives us numerous examples of this. He gives us examples like the perishing of the entire inhabited world during the flood, mentioned in 2 Peter 3.6, the land that has lost its fruitfulness in the Septuagint version of Ezekiel 6 and Ezekiel 14, the lostness of the sheep, the lostness of the lost coin, the lostness of the lost son in Luke 15. It can be used of lost people presently living in a state of perishing in 1 Corinthians 1.18, 2 Corinthians 2.15, 2 Corinthians 4.3, and 2 Thessalonians 2.10. It can mean the ruined wineskins in Matthew 9.17. It can mean the destruction of the weaker brother if you eat food in front of him that he thinks you cannot eat in Romans 14.15. It can mean the waste of the ointment poured on Jesus' feet in Matthew 26.8. It can mean the fading beauty of God, uh, fading beauty of God being refined in a fire in 1 Peter 1:7. It can mean consuming hunger pains in Luke 15:7 and the uh, the Septuagint rendering of Ezekiel 34:29. It can be contrasted with life, such as in John 3:16, and would only mean cessation of life if and only if we think that Jesus meant merely existence. The problem is Jesus clearly was not talking about mere existence, but comparing two qualitatively different modes of existence, the abundant life versus the ruinous life. Also, outside of the New Testament, it refers to food that is spoiled, wine that has lost its flavor, and even a woman being seduced. In all of these cases, nothing like complete, total, absolute cessation of existence type of destruction is meant. This is actually the majority use of these terms. Apollea is used with Alethros in 1 Timothy 6.9. This would be wildly problematic if they both meant annihilation. But in this verse, neither of them seem to mean that. It reads, quote, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. End quote. Surely there are many people who fall and fell into this kind of ruinous lifestyle and ruined their lives and live in what Paul would call and consider destruction. But they're not annihilated. In fact, they're still alive for Paul to speak of. These terms are used together, and neither of them mean uh, annihilation. Okay, the other word that I want to look at briefly is ionios, which is translated as eternal. We're going to look at some aspects of this later uh, as it develops through some of the texts, so I don't want to spend too much time on it here and really, you know, kind of double dip later on. Um, but I want to make a quick comment. While Ionios can mean a limited age, that's a possible meaning, there's no reason to think so in the context of the perdition of the damned. The age argument has been known to not work by nearly all exegetes outside of the conditionalist camp. 
The parallels used to describe eternal punishment in contrast with eternal life are decisive on this point, such as Matthew 25, 46, which we'll look at later, as interpreting perdition as an age, but life as eternal would be arbitrary and lopsided and would ruin the the comparison between the two and would render that comparison simply nonsensical. But we'll look at that later on. Okay. Next, I want to look at imagery considerations, and this is where a lot of the rubber is going to hit the road. Here are just a couple of the images that we'll address uh, throughout this series, and more of them will come up in some of the different talk contexts. The first one is the fire that consumes, the unquenchable fire, the worm that never dies. They're, always, they're, they're often paired together. Stott has this quote that's pretty famous about this. He says, quote, the main function of fire is not to cause pain, but to secure destruction as all the world's incinerators bear witness, end quote. Okay, is it true that the fire is not meant to be an image of, of suffering, but an image of absolute destruction? Well, Stott might seem to think so, and maybe that's the purpose of all the furnaces in the world today, but that apparently wasn't the case in the biblical world. John the Baptist depicts the judge burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire in Matthew 3.12. The fire is unquenchable, but the chaff doesn't seem to be fire-resistant. That is, the chaff just keeps burning. Gehenna, for example, the garbage is finely burned up, isn't it? Mm, Well... Maybe, maybe not. Judith 16.7, I know it's apocryphal, but Judith 16.7 says, quote, God puts fire and worms in their flesh, end quote, so that they, quote, they shall weep and feel their pain forever, end quote. Now, surely part of the historical tapestry from which Jesus was drawing his imagery of, the worm that will not die and the fire that will not be quenched, is from Judith 16.7, from the intertestamental Second Temple literature period. It's an almost verbatim word-for-word borrowing from Judith 16.17. Part of the problem with metaphors is precisely that they're metaphorical. Any natural metaphor of an eternal state will be limited and finite precisely because the image of the metaphor is not itself an eternal object. We cannot push metaphors to stand on all four legs. So we don't normally think of blazing fire and worms coexisting. The worm would be something that would be burned up also. So they're metaphorical. They, they have limits. But that's just because those objects are natural objects. But they're describing eternal things. So why should we think that the eternal thing is limited by the image? We never think of images this way, and I'll give more examples as we go. How could a lake of fire coexist with the darkest darkness? What's the purpose of the chains and restraint if thrown into a pit of burning fire? These are indications that we should not read these limitations back onto the meaning. The fire is unquenchable. Does this mean that the fire will continue without a fuel source? Well, could it not be like the burning bush, a fire that did not burn up the tree, didn't exhaust its fuel source? The worm doesn't die. If this is a reference to the maggot that feeds on the dead body until it's consumed, which is 
basically nearly the universal view. It doesn't actually, it's not really imagining earthworms here. Then what will it subsist on after the body is consumed? Remember, the worm will never die. The eternality of the worm tells us something about the longevity of the food source. Guthrie is correct when he says that the maggots are a description of the unrepentant sinner's final state, what he calls, quote, a state of continuous punishment, end quote. It's not merely that the fire is unquenchable, as in that nothing can dash it out, as the conditionalist claims. In the parallel passages of Mark 9:48 and Matthew 18:8, the people are thrown into the eternal fire. That's quote-unquote eternal fire. If unquenchable does not mean that it will never go out, but that it cannot go out until the fuel is consumed, then how is the fire eternal without an eternal fuel source? That is, the parallel tells us something more about the unquenchable fire, not just that it's unquenchable that someone cannot douse it to put it out, but that it's in fact eternal. Well, what does the eternal state of the, of the fire mean? Sure, it might be metaphor, but what is eternal metaphor for? And what about the degrees of punishment that are due to those who suffer? Would not annihilation be the same punishment for all people? So in the parables that talk about get dishing out different levels of, of punishment for different levels of sin, what's that metaphorical for? Those questions need to be answered, and I honestly haven't really heard a good one. The next, the next image is that of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping is an image which signifies deep sorrow leading to tears. Gnashing of teeth, which means to grind one's teeth, is an image of extreme suffering or remorse or anger. Both of these physical images are images of deep emotional and existential agony. These images are also used in, conjunct in conjunction with other symbols like darkness in Matthew 8, 12, 22, 13, 25, 30, used in conjunction with images of being cut into pieces in Matthew 24, 51, and the fiery furnace in Matthew 13, 42, and 13, 50, and on its own, but with the expressed idea of being cast out from Jesus' present, presence in Luke 13, 28. In all seven occurrences, the image of weeping and gnashing of teeth is preceded by the adverb eke, which is translated as there in that place, which tells us that there is a loca location where the weeping and gnashing will occur. It's not an abstraction about annihilation. Now, I understand that these are mostly images and that there's metaphorical meanings. Um, but once again, what would the symbolic meaning be for the annihilationist? Surely the image is already present and explainable in that weeping and gnashing of teeth is the metaphor for deep existential anguish. That's just what the metaphor is. The annihilationist or the conditionalist would need to come up with some even deeper mystical meaning that runs ever theologically further below the text that Im image uh, sorry that images of personal anguish are metaphors for the absence of personal anguish i just don't think they can do that the next image is that of death now the conditionalist will use death as a symbol 
that our physical death is but a picture of our final cessation of life. Much of their entire case rests on this idea that death just is cessation of being. Here's the problem. The problem is that biblically speaking, death actually is not the cessation of being. It's never treated as such. It's the passing of one state of existence to another. Paul tells us that to be out of the body is to be present with Christ. Lazarus and the rich man experience Sheol differently, but experience it nonetheless. Elijah was brought back in spirit from the dead by the witch of Endor. The saints who suffer martyrdom reside under the throne of God, and on and on and on. It's simply not the case that physical death just means the cessation of being, but rather than the cessation of physical embodied life for a time. This is why I think many conditionalists have now started adopting the far more problematic view of physicalism, where humans just are our bodies, so that when we die, we really do cease to exist. By the way, I have a far more deep problem with physicalism than I do with conditionalism. I actually do think it's problematic. At the resurrection, God brings us back to life and in a real sense, back into existence, they claim. This view is so wildly problematic, especially when we start to ask how such views would impact our, our, our idea of the incarnation of Jesus. Think about it. If Jesus was fully human and died, does that mean that the human nature only suffered absolute extinction? If so, then was Jesus just a divine ghost in a human shell? If not, does that mean that the eternal son suffered extinction? To affirm any of these seems to utterly break the hypostatic union. To deny this would mean that physicalism is false. This is the horns of a real dilemma for the conditionalists that we will hash out more in the next session dealing with the theological issues of conditionalism. Another problem for this idea that death is a cessation of life is why must God raise people from non-being, that is, raise unrepentant people from non-being, just to judge them back into non-being. Remember, one of the arguments is that it that that uh, eternal conscious torment somehow is unjust. This seems wildly unjust. If the punishment for sin is death, and a person has died, that is, they paid the penalty for their death, and they've experienced a cessation of life, if you can call that an experience, and they're not being granted eternal life, what seems capricious and unjust is to raise them back to life just to rub it in more and punish them again. How is that being fair or just? That scalpel seems to cut both ways. So in that sense, death is, is also merely a type of the final second death that the unbeliever will experience. It's not a cessation of being, but a transition into a new stage of existence, one where they exist by the common grace of God in his created world with all the benefits, to one where they are cast out of his presence, separated from any form of grace into eternity of ruin and destruction. But for the conditionalist to say that death just is the cessation of existence is to simply beg the question of what death means in the scripture and to do so with a concept that is prima facie banal, but really not accurate under further scrutiny. Okay, those are some of the images. 
Now let's build on that and go into some of the textual considerations. Matthew 8:29 is the first one. It reads, "And behold they cried out, what have we to do with what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time?" End quote. These are the demons who are crying out when they see Jesus coming, and it appears that the demons believe that they'll exist in torment and not in annihilation. We'll see why this is important later. Matthew 10, 28 uh, reads, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Could this refer to annihilation? On first blush, it appears, it appears that it could. The problem is that when we look to the more explicit parallel passage in Luke 12:5, that's no longer the case. That parallel passage says, quote, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. End quote. That is, after you've died, you can still experience a state of destruction. After you've died, after he's killed your body, he can still cast you into hell. If death is annihilation, then this would seem an impossible to achieve intensification of the punishment. Matthew 13, 41 to 42 says, quote, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. End quote. Here, the blazing furnace is the destiny of the unbeliever. Yet again, where there is a conscious weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not a picture of extinction, but conscience, conscious anguish. What else could the symbol mean again, if not personal torment? In fact, Jesus could have simply borrowed the language of his parable of the weeds from Matthew 13.30, just 10 verses before, where he ended that by simply speaking of the tying of the weeds in the bundle to be burned. But in this present parable, Jesus does not warn his audience of extermination. That is, that they could just be a bundle that'll get consumed in a fire. But rather, he warns them of suffering. He adds that in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Basically, if you go a key, okay, if you go there to that place, you will persist in anguish, so don't go there. Here also the fire speaks of anguish and not of extinction, and Jesus expressly says so. In fact, he says so again in the next few verses in the parable of the net, where he also warns that the furnace is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Sorry, John Stott, the furnace here is not just the idea of con- uh, consuming the, what's, what the fuel that's put inside. There is the idea of punishment clearly stated. Matthew 25, 46 reads, quote, Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the, one, to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. End quote. Here, Pennock comments, quote, Jesus does not define the nature of eternal life or eternal death in this text. He just says that there will be two destinies, and he leaves it there. One is free to interpret it to mean either everlasting conscious torment or irreversible destruction. 
The text allows for both possibilities and only teaches explicitly the finality of the judgment itself, not of its nature. Therefore, one's interpretation of this verse in respect to our subject here will depend upon whether con- other considerations. In the light uh, of what has been said so far, I think it is better and wiser to read the text as teaching annihilationism. End quote. I would call that motivated reasoning. D.A. Carson, officially in print, calls it, quote, close to wishful thinking, end quote. Now, some annihilations are going to fall back on the aeonion can mean age argument and say that Jesus can use the term to mean an age and that eternity even within the same verse, such as in 12, uh, Matthew 12, 32. Here's the problem. Matthew 12.32 is clear in why it uses the same term both ways, because it's referring to a temporal succession from this age, this aeon, to the age to come, that aeon, where the age to come is an open age on the back end. It never ends. So, in fact, Jesus isn't using it differently in the same verse. He isn't actually saying in this age and in eternity. He's saying in this age and in the age to come. It just happens that the age to come is eternal. He means age by both, uh, by both uses in 1232, but the nature of those ages is determined by what they are. So he just doesn't mean age and eternity such that he would say in this age and eternity. He doesn't use it differently like they would claim. We can infer the limits on the first and the eternality of the second, not by Jesus' word choice of aeon in both, but theologically based on what we know each age constitutes. If Jesus used them the same way, the conditionalist would suggest here, it would lead to an utterly disjointed analogy. Problem two, Jesus never uses the adjective aeonios to mean an aged thing. It always means eternal. So when Jesus is using aeonios adjectivally to describe eternal life and eternal punishment, he is referring to the everlasting nature of both. Problem three, even if we were to grant that Jesus could mean age, the question naturally just becomes, how long would that age be? With respect to the final state, the conditionalist would need to then demonstrate that the age to come is everlasting for some and not for others, which just clearly is not described in the verse and would be an ad hoc and arbitrary addition. Now, Pennock and others take a different tact of arguing that this verse refers to the outcome of the actions. It's not actually that the punishment is eternal and that the gift of life is eternal, but that the results of the punishment and the gift are eternal. Here, there's a couple of problems again. Problem one, the text does not make the distinction anywhere. The adjective modifies the nouns for life and punishment and not the outcomes or the wages of those actions. It's just not in the text. Problem two is that verse 41, where Jesus tells those to his left to leave him into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. While the conditionalist will try to serialize or give a chronology to these events, it's far more natural to the Greek to read verses 41 and 46 as parallels. Jesus is not punishing the goats 
and then later on sending those to his left into destruction in that chronological order. He's speaking of the same event. The punishment and the casting out of his presence into the lake of fire are the same event by two different analogies, by two different parables. This is nearly the universal view of all exegetes. Problem number three is that in light of the clear parallel to Revelation 20.10, where the devil and those not found in the book of life are expressly suffering without rest day and night forever and ever, it's hard to imagine that the goats suffer something qualitatively different in this image than they do in John's revelation when Jesus cast them there. Okay. One other problem not addressed is that the term translated as punishment, colossus, eternal punishment specifically, never has the connotation of annihilation in the Bible. Never. It always means punishment. Okay. The next passage is Matthew 26, 24, which reads, quote, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born, end quote. Here, Jesus was speaking of Judas, but the question is, how could his eternal destiny be worse than if he had never been born if both states would simply be non-existence? The analogy just breaks down if you hold to annihilationism. The next passage is Mark 9, 47 to 48, with its parallels in Matthew 18, 8 Luke, and Luke 12, 5. We've touched on this a little bit, but I'm going to go into this in a little bit more depth. Not much more depth, but a little bit more. It reads, quote, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame with two feet than to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. End quote. Okay. Here, we have to remember that the parallel in Matthew 18.8 is not where the fire is not quenched. It's into the eternal fire. Remember that. It's not just that the fire cannot be put out. It's that the fire is eternal. It's everlasting. Now, again, it's not also that the worm, it's not that it's the worm. It's their worm when it talks about uh, the worm that does not die. So it doesn't actually say, uh, let me find the exact word again, um, where the worm does not die. It says where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched, indicating that the eternal worm is identified with the individual for eternity. The worm is eternal as their worm. Just grammatically, think about that for a second. Now, it's also not, again, not merely that the fire is unquenchable, as in that nothing can dash it out as the conditionalist claims. Again, the parallel in Matthew 18.8 that people are thrown into the eternal fire if the unquenchable does not mean that it will never go out, but that it cannot go out until the fuel is consumed, then how is the fire eternal without an eternal food source? Remember, the conditionalist is making the argument that the, the fire is unquenchable. That is, someone can't intentionally put it out until it completes its job of consuming the fuel. Well, this cuts against them. In the parallel passage, if the fire is eternal, 
that means its fuel source must be eternal because the conditionalist has already conceded that the fire is unquenchable so long as there is a fuel source. Well, if it's unquenchable for eternity, then the fuel source is eternal. Again, I know that this language is symbolic, and I don't think that hell consists of an actual fire. But Jesus is modifying the term fire to tell us something theologically, that it is eternal. What would the modification to eternal symbolically stand for, if not eternality? The conditionalist needs to answer that question without going into gross ad hoc allegory. Now, the next verse, Luke 12, 47 to 48, quote, And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready uh, or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what was deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more, end quote. We here again see that there is a difference in the severity of the judgment. Now, this is a parable, and to be sure, we must not push it past breaking point. We will agree with the conditionalist that it's a parable and thus employs metaphor. But what are the varied degrees a metaphor for? The beatings might be a metaphor. That is, in hell, you might not actually have someone standing there with a stick beating you or a rod beating you or a whip whipping you. But it's hard to imagine that the principle of varied degrees of reciprocity for one's sins is a metaphor for something besides that very principle. That's just, I just can't see a way around that. Clearly, the image of the beating is the notion of punishment to the individual for their sins, and they're varied. If you want to argue that that's a, that's a metaphor, great. But the metaphor appears to be in the fact that it's a beating, not that it's a punishment to varied degrees for someone's actions. Again, they would have to engage in something other than ad hoc allegory to explain that away. The next passage is Luke 16, 22 to 26. Now, this is the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and I don't have time. We're already going to go way over time on this episode. So without reading the entire passage, let me just give a couple of the, the clauses that are in the passage. There's places where the rich man was, quote, in Hades being in torment, end quote, and that he spoke out saying, quote, I am in agony in this fire, end quote, and finally asked Lazarus to send a word to his father's house so his family would not, quote, come into this place of torment, end quote. Okay, first, focus on the fire here. Notice that contrary to Stott, who argued that fire represents destruction and not, not suffering, nothing more than destruction, the rich man says explicitly, expressly, repeatedly the exact opposite. He wants water to cool his tongue precisely because he's in agony in the fire and sees it specifically as his means of torment. He calls the place his torment. He wants his family to not come to the place of torment. He says that he's there in torment. It can't get any more clear than that. I love John Stott as an exegete, but he's just dropped the ball in this case. In addition, given the first century context within the thought life of Second Temple Judaism, we know that the nearly universal view was that of eternal conscious torment and that those suffering in Hades would simply be judged and transitioned to hell or Gehenna on the day of the Lord. Jesus would have surely known that this is how 
his parable would have been heard, and this would have been a perfect primary time to correct that if it was a misunderstanding. But instead of doing that, instead of correcting that view if it was false, he doubles down on it and uses the exact same language of the rabbis to describe the place of torment that the rich man was in. Oliver Buswell writes, quote, that literal and intense suffering is the meaning intended cannot be denied by any reasonable method of exegesis, end quote. Okay, the next passage is John 3, 36. Whoever, believe, quote, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, end quote. Similar to the parallelism of Matthew 25, 46, here John compares the eternal life of those who believe in the Son with those who shall not see life and who have the wrath of God remaining on them. Well, does this mean that they have no life at all? Not at all. Notice that God's wrath abides on them. This has the, this has the sense of God's continual wrath being poured out on the unbeliever in the same way that God abides in the unbeliever. What sense would it make for God to abide with the unbeliever, if, or sorry, to abide with the believer if the believer didn't exist? Well, what sense does it make for God's continual wrath to abide on the unbeliever if the unbeliever doesn't exist? What sense would it make to have that continue abiding wrath poured out on Nobody. They wouldn't be in existence to pour it out on. It just, if you assume annihilationism, the language of the, uh, of the, uh, of the statement just doesn't make any sense. The next passage is 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, which reads, quote, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Okay, first thought. Notice that he's going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, the annihilationists might want to get away, might be able to get away with saying that they suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That is, they suffer being annihilated. Okay, but are you afflicted during that? Are you afflicted after you're annihilated? That just doesn't really make sense of the language for them to be afflicted as they suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Now, there's other problems here. Notice here Paul is referring to the time when Christ returns to reign and rule and to judge the ungodly. This is clearly not the intermediate state. And so what does he do? He inflicts his vengeance on those who reject God and Christ by causing them to suffer eternal punishment and to be shut out from the presence of the Lord. Not only does this suffer the problems mentioned above about the adjectival use of Ionios, that is eternal, but what sense does it make to say that an annihilated person could then be shut out from the presence of God? Or even that the shutting out from the presence just is annihilation. 
surely being away from one's presence means that you are somewhere else. This is graphically depicted in Revelation 22:15, speaking of the New Jerusalem. It reads, quote, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who lives and practices falsehoods. Those who have not been washed by the Lamb are cast outside of the blessed city. Like the party guests of Jesus' parables or the latecomers to the wedding, they are cast outside away from the presence of the Lord, but they dwell outside implying continued existence. McKnight summarizes this concept in 2 Thessalonians 1 by saying, quote, Paul has in mind an irreversible verdict of eternal non-fellowship with God. A person exists but remains excluded from God's good presence, end quote. The next passage is Hebrews 9.17. It reads, quote, Man is destined to die once, then after that to face judgment. Here, we see that man does survive physical death, and it is after their death that they face judgment. While this will be a stronger verse used in the next episode to to combat physicalism and one of the theological points made by conditionalism, here, let me simply point out that the verse assumes that death is not the cessation of being. Remember, this is one of the controlling assumptions of the annihilationists. If the assumption goes, the whole house of cards falls. And here, the author of Hebrews clearly thinks that death is not the annihilation of existence. The next set of passages are Jude 6-7, Matthew 8-12, Matthew 22-13, and Matthew 25-30. And it's in these passages that the unbeliever is thrown into the darkness. But... This should not be understood to mean destruction to the point of cessation of being, but rather to a state of deprivation and ruin. After all, only those who exist have the capacity to weep and gnash their teeth. Remember, when they're thrown into the darkness, it's there that there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, if the conditionalist wants to fall back on these merely being symbols, then what are they symbols of? Typically, they're symbols of, uh, that are clearly shorthand for agony, but the conditionalist must add a deeper level of meaning. Sure, weeping and gnashing of teeth are symbols of agony, but agony is a symbol of what? Shame? Okay, who's ashamed? You see, symbols are only meaningful if they have concrete concepts that they symbolize, It is simply not clear what such a concrete concept would be if the subject was annihilated and was no longer capable of experiencing the agony depicted by the symbols. It would, again, be ad hoc allegory to basically say that the symbols of agony are actually deeper allegorical symbols of non-agony. It just breaks what the meaning of these symbols are. The next passage is Revelation 14, 9 through 11. It reads, quote, <clears throat> And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beasts and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with the fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. 
Here, the Greek intensive, Ionios ton Ionion, is the strongest way in Greek to emphatically say forever. In fact, it's usually translated forever and ever. It never, 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 never means age in the New Testament. So one CI response one can be to alter the order to be suffering, then consumption, then the smoke rises. Okay then why does John insist that they suffer from, quote, no rest day or night? It just breaks the entire analogy. Following fudge, conditionalists attempt to serialize or add chronology to the images used of hell, punishment, destruction, exclusion from God. Rather than seeing them all as images of the same reality, fudge wants to create an eschatological ordering to them. Uh, Harmon, in his criticism of Fudge, writes, quote, For Fudge, God's final sentence begins with banishment, continues with a period of conscious suffering, and ends with destruction. In fact, not a single New Testament passage teaches exactly this sequence. Instead, some texts speak of personal exclusion, some of punishment, and others of destruction. And these images need to be understood as giving us hints at the same eschatological reality. Fudge not only chronologizes these images, but he also emphasizes one to the exclusion of the other two. Destruction dominates while punishment and exclusion fall into the background. Indeed, the latter image is hardly discussed, end quote. And here Harmon is talking about uh, in Fudge's book. Okay, another conditionalist response compares this passage to Isaiah 34, 9 through 10, which is one of Date's favorite tactics, by the way, where similar language is used of Edom, where Edom is wiped out, the fire is not quenched, and the smoke rises forever. Thus, Date says, the image is of irreversible judgment and not eternal torment. Okay, is this a valid hermeneutic and a way to understand these passages? Absolutely not. Revelation 14 speaks of the smoke of their torment that rises. If this is a metaphor, what is the torment metaphorical of? And why is it the smoke of their torment that rises forever? Okay, next, there is no parallel in Isaiah 34 of the Edomites being tormented and having no rest day and night, like there is in Revelation. So you don't have the controlling idea of no rest everlasting for day and night applied to the passage in Isaiah. They're just not necessarily analogous. In fact, here, the conditionalist-like date gets the imagery exactly backwards. It's not that Edom language is used to describe hell. It's that hell language is used to describe Edom in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah were. These cities were destroyed by the principle of harem or the ban, the original harem before the Israelites went into the land. This is where the principle comes from, where God commanded that they were devoted to destruction because of their sin. Throughout the Old Testament, Sodom is used as an example for punishment on those who rebel against God, such as Deuteronomy 29-23, Isaiah 1-9-10, Jeremiah 23-14, Jeremiah 49-18, Lamentations 4-6, Amos 4-11, and Zephaniah 2-9. 
But the earthly concept of harem seen in the Old Testament is simply a type of the eschatological harem, the final judgment of the wicked. As Jude 7 tells us, quote, they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire, end quote. Peter tells us some, something similar in 2 Peter 2, 6-9, when he says that, quote, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, end quote. These cities are types and shadows of the reality of hell. In the same way that we do not limit the work of Christ by mapping it exactly back onto bulls and lambs and cultic worship in Israel, so too we should not limit the final state of the damned by mapping it directly back onto Edom, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Remember, finite analogies are necessarily finite. So the conditionalist has the interpretive arrow going exactly backwards from the substance back to the shadow rather than having the shadow pointing to the substance telling us something about it, but not necessarily everything about it. Hell is the full and final consummation of the harem principle to which the Old Testament pointed. This is why Jesus can tell us in Matthew 10:15 that one that on the day of judgment it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for the Pharisees. Notice first that Sodom is used as a lesser foil to the final judgment of the damned heresies. And, sorry, the damned Pharisees. Well, how would this make sense if the punishment of annihilation was meted out equally to all the lost? It wouldn't. Some annihilationists try to escape some of the question about differences in the severity of punishment by saying that it refers to the intermediate state before the final judgment. But again, in this passage, Jesus explicitly says that these differences in severity will be on the day of final judgment. So here, again, Date just gets these exactly wrong. His hermeneutics are just backwards. Okay, another verse, Revelation 20, 10 through 15. Stott attempts to say that it's not Satan who is thrown into the fire, but the false prophet and the beast, and that these are institutions and not persons. So it makes no sense to think of them being cast personally into hell. He argues that this is further endorsed when we see that death and Hades are also thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, first problem is that this assumes his view of Revelation as a whole. Now, as someone who holds to a recapitulatory or cyclic amillennial view of Revelation, I agree with Carson that these are likely recurring individuals who will culminate in the substance of the motif in a final exemplar individual, and that they are not merely broad institutions or powers. Thus, the final ones cast in the fire are not just non-personal symbols, and Stott would need to demonstrate this. That is, he's just begging the question. It's also not clear that conditionalists as a whole would agree with his view of Revelation to begin with. Okay, by the way, also notice that the beast and the false prophet were actually thrown into the lake of fire back in Revelation 19.20 before the millennium. Now, in 2010-15, through 15, after the millennium, they're still existing in torment. They haven't been annihilated. Now, I'm a non-millennial. I don't take the millennium period as a prediction of an actually occurring literal thousand-year period in the future, in full disclosure. However, that is the image that's being used in Revelation, and so the sense of them being thrown in before the thousand-year period and still existing after the thousand years is certainly part of the image. 
that it's everlasting. Well, what's the sentiment behind that aspect for the annihilationist? Does the image conceive of them being annihilated or persisting in judgment? Clearly, it's the latter. The second problem here is that Stott removes the devil to focus on the meaning of the false prophet and the beast, but he never brings the devil back into the discussion. He wants us to kind of forget that the devil was there and say, oh, well, the false prophet and the beast, those are institutions they don't really count. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. Let's move on this way. The problem is, is that the devil's also there. And we're told that he's in torment day and night forever and ever. So Satan shows that the lake of fire cannot be taken as purely symbolic. There is at least one personal being suffering for eternity in hell. It's hard then to see how the eternal suffering of humans would be any less cogent than the eternal suffering and destruction of the devil. It just, if, if the devil can be eternally destroyed and eternally suffer, it just breaks the argument that those don't conceptually make sense. Third, Stott also ignores in verse 15 that it is anyone's name and not just the devil, the beast, or the false prophet that's thrown into the lake of fire. Why should we assume that the devil is thrown in, but the humans who served him and were not named in the book of life are not, despite it clearly saying so? Further, why should we assume that the humans are fully consumed to the point of cessation of existence, but the devil is not? In fact, we're told in Revelation 21.8 that the place of the ungodly will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur and that the second death surely, and that that is the second death. And surely this is a reference to the lake of fire in the previous chapter and that the ungodly are still present in that lake of fire. And this second death is not like the first. The second death is worse. It's the real death. But there's no reason to think that it's the cessation of complete existence any more than the first death was. In fact, how could it? Death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. That's good news for the believer since it means death can never reign over us again. But that's bad news for the unbeliever because that means another death is not on the horizon to change their state of existence again. Their state of being eternally punished will never end. There's no death that will close that period for them. That is their final state, and it is final. My friends, do you know Jesus? Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or yes, condemnations. Please feel free to visit me on my blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Email me at freedthinkerpodcast.gmail.com or visit the Freedthinker group page on Facebook. Now, I'm still working on part two of this dealing with the theological arguments made by, made by the annihilationists and the conditionalists, but that may make a little bit, take a little bit of time. So join us next time as we get back on schedule with our episode asking what kind of lady Queen Jezebel really was. Good night and God bless.